Welcome to the Unconventional Path, entrepreneurship and innovation stories and ideas. Hello, I'm Bela Musitz. And I'm Mike Wasserman, Bela. Remember me? It's been a while since we've done one of these, hasn't it? Yes, it has. We're back, folks. Uh, we've taken a uh, three or four month break. I can't quite remember uh, from podcasting. And uh, we had some great conversations, Mike and I did, about revamping the podcast a little bit. So uh, what did we end up deciding, Mike? Well, we're starting a new podcast. So we're going to keep <laughs> doing this one, albeit irregularly. We have uh, irregular guests lined up, and we've got content that we're putting together uh, that should, should last a while. But uh, we also started uh, probably the least likely podcast one who knew me would imagine that I would start with you. But I don't know. You want to you wanna tell them a little bit about it? Yeah, so we have a new podcast that will be coming out in probably about a month, so it's not quite uh, fully cooked yet, but it's about sailing, and it's about uh, sailing the East Coast of the United States, and uh, I'm the sailor, and uh, Mike is not, and we thought it would be an interesting kind of dialogue between uh, Mike and I about sailing, and we're going to talk about destinations, uh, places to go, places to visit. We're going to talk a little bit about equipment. And uh, just sort of a little bit about uh, other things related to sailing and have an occasional guest or two. And for this podcast, uh, we also are making some changes, sure. right? So we're going to go, typically our podcasts, we're running 45 to uh, over an hour long, 45 minutes to over an hour long. Uh, I think the new episodes here at the Unconventional Path will be more likely between 25 to 35 minutes long. Uh, so we're trying to shorten them up a little bit, um, and we and we're not sure we're going to produce one every week. It's going to sort of when we come across a good guest, someone who we think is interesting and exciting, uh, we're going to issue a new uh, episode. Uh, previously, we sort of did episodes every week, and so the schedule now is going to be uh, maybe a little less frequent, um, and, but uh, it'll still be we'll still be producing podcasts. Irregularly so quaint. Irregularly quaint. Yes, exactly. Now, the guest will not be irregular. No, the schedule the will host. be irregular. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, yeah, yes. the hosts are highly irregular. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So today, uh, we're uh, really excited to be joined by Dan Dembski. Uh, so this is a really interesting story. Uh, Dan uh, and his two best friends started Unbound Merino. Uh, which is uh, merino is wool. It's a particular type, type of, of wool. Comes up yeah. uh, off well, it's a particular a type of sheep. sheep. The wool's from the sheep. <laughs> right. It's a particular type of sheep, yeah. a particular breed, and the wool is uh, extra soft. It's uh, got lanolin built into it, so it's not the typical wool that you think about. You know, that's itchy and scratchy and uh, all that kind of stuff. So this is this is a really fine, very soft wool, uh, and. Uh, he started a business uh, designing and selling and manufacturing uh, men's products, uh, shirts, T-shirts, uh, things like that. And uh, it's really interesting because it's a crowded market, right? The clothing and fashion industry is just really a crowded, crowded market with big players, small players, and uh, it's hard to elbow your way into there. Uh, and he's kind of uh, uh, carved himself out a niche, uh, which we thought was really interesting. With no and, uh, industry experience, right? With, with right. no industry experience. Zero, in, 
Right. Zero industry experience, zero fashion experience, zero yep. manufacturing experience. But had an idea and, and saw a market need that wasn't being filled because it was a product that he wanted. So this is this to me is a great story. I mean, sheer persistence, a little bit of luck, right? Um, definitely some marketing and branding know-how baked in. But so far, a, a, a great story, um, even with COVID. And we'll, he'll talk a little bit about that, about how he's had to uh, pivot a little bit in terms of the target market, but uh, but yeah, really great story. But you know what? We're giving it all away. Let's just get right to the interview. What do you think, Bela? Sounds good. So here's Dan. Let's give him a listen. Hello, folks. Today I'm here with Dan Dembski. He is the founder of a very very interesting company, and uh, I think we're going to hear a really good story today. So welcome to the show, Dan. Hey, how are you? I'm well. So let me ask you a question. If you go to a social event and someone comes up and introduces themselves to you and they say, oh, Dan, very nice to meet you. And they ask you, hey, Dan, what do you do? How do you answer that question? So if I go to a social event, uh, one of the things I hate doing the most is talking about what I do. I used to be in a service business. I used to have a video production agency and we worked with brands like large brands and other big ad agencies and did all the video production and the digital video strategy for these brands. I used to have to be very good at this. I used to have to go into a crowd and network. Sorry if you can hear my dog barking in the background. I'm going to just pretend he's not there. But uh, I used to have to get really good at this stuff. And part of the reason I got into what I do now is because I hated having to always be on. I hated to always have to to, to, to show what I did for a living and to be intriguing and to try to see if this person I'm talking to has value to the business because I find it really takes away from the, the truth of what I really want in a social interaction. So what we do do is we're an e-commerce brand. We sell Merino wool apparel. And for a long time, we were positioned as a travel company. We make clothing that helps you pack less so you can experience more. And the reason that you could pack less is because our clothing's antibacterial and it's odor resistant. So if you're traveling for two or three weeks, instead of packing 14 t-shirts, you can pack two or three t-shirts because you could wear them multiple days in a row if you wanted to, because it's never going to smell and it's antibacterial. I don't like talking about this at parties, though. <laughs> at parties, I like talking about the music I'm into and the party itself and the people that we know the mutually there. Um, so I, I do avoid talking about work, but I answered what I do for work. Yeah. So what's the name fact. of the company, Dan? Our, our company's Unbound Merino. Okay. And so what's so special about Merino wool? So basically what I said, Merino... You know, there's a lot of synthetic uh, performance clothing out there. Athleisure is very big. You know, brands like Kitten Ace and Lululemon and Arcteryx. Those are great brands that have a very, very good purpose. A lot of the clothing they make is synthetic. Some merino wool. The difference between synthetic clothing and merino wool is there's no chemicals in the production of merino wool. There's no chemical coating. That there's no chemicals in the making of it. It's a naturally occurring basically a miracle fabric the way it, the way it works is the, the fibers on merino wool are coated with something called lanolin which doesn't allow sweat or moisture to absorb into it and it wicks away moisture so the this is the the natural defense that the merino sheep has against the different elements so you take this miracle fabric and you turn it into this 
t-shirts and sweatshirts and people think wool it's oh it's going to be itchy it's going to be bulky it's going to be uncomfortable this is so fine it feels finer than a cotton so you put on a t-shirt made of wool and the first thought is i can't believe that this is wool and then you can wear it i mean i've put this to the test i've worn it in a hot yoga class and a spin class i let it air dry and i wear it out to dinner on the same night and you would never know the shirt will never smell we did a test this is how we launched the brand we I did a test where I wore it 46 days in a row and I put it through everything. And it was you, at the end of 46 days, the t-shirt smelled clean and fresh as the first day I put it on. So it, it's all natural. We didn't invent this material. What we did is we just created a line of clothing that looks, you know, a lot of it was made as athletic wear. We made it more simple, stylish, basic stuff that you could wear out to a nice dinner with a nice pair of pants and, and a watch. And we positioned it towards the traveler, which worked really well for us for a while until a global pandemic shut down the mm. entire travel industry. And then we had to navigate out of that a little bit. Yeah. So, it, you know, the, the clothing market's a pretty crowded market. And merino wool, it, like you said, it's not a proprietary material that you have. So how do you elbow your way into a, a really crowded market like that? Well, I'll tell you something. I was I was once interviewed for uh, a magazine um, called Insider Fashion, and I was going to speak at an event called FashCon, which they put on in Hong Kong, which was then canceled because of the pandemic. Um, and they were so fascinated in my story because of how little I knew of the clothing industry and the fashion industry. And I think how naive I was might have been the reason why I was able to elbow into it because I wasn't thinking about how crowded was. I wasn't thinking about how to do things the way that it's done. What I noticed is I was looking for merino wool clothing that looked and fit a certain way and I couldn't find it. So I'm like, well, I should do it because I could do it better. But the thing is, I was already running another business. I didn't have the extra capital. I didn't have the bandwidth or the energy to, to start this thing. But I just felt like I know I want this. And I can't find it. And I felt there was that hole in the market. So I became sort of obsessed. I have to do this. I would, I would keep me up, literally keep me up at night. And I'm not a problem sleeper. I could sleep through anything. I had my eyes wide open, laying on the pillow, thinking, I have to do this. But I have no money to do it. I have no energy to do it. And I have no time to do it. And I have another business to build. So we decided to do a crowdfunding campaign. Because not only would the crowdfunding campaign, if people were to back our product, would it, not only would it give us money, but it would also validate the idea. If the, if the thing didn't work, we'd say, well, maybe we don't have product market fit. Maybe we're not, our idea is not so good. But if it is backed, we could say, well, you know, our idea is pretty good and here's proof because people just voted with their wallets. So we did this crowdfunding campaign as a way of validating the idea and to get a little capital to start the business. And we tried to sell $30,000 in pre-orders and we sold 400,000. So we thought, well, we, we have an idea and I think this idea might work. So uh, that's how we started the company. Wow, and did you use one of the crowdfunding uh, uh, motherships or whatever the right word is, uh, facilitators? We used, we used Indiegogo, which okay. is the, sec the second biggest. And the reason we didn't use Kickstarter, which is the first biggest, is because like anything, the second place company has to work a little harder. You know, and what we found with Kickstarter was we weren't able to talk to anybody that worked there. Like we could fill out a form and they wouldn't reply to us. It was too big of a company. But Indiegogo, when we said we were interested in creating a campaign on your platform, 
they uh, assign an account person to us and they cut deals with us that if you can get 30% of your funding goal in the first 48 hours, we'll feature you in our marketing newsletter. And, and they spent time with us to help us make the campaign good. So we thought, wow, we really need this handholding because we're scared. We want this thing to work and we, we, we need help. Yeah. And yeah. Indiegogo was willing to give us the help. So we went with them and that was probably the best decision we made, not just because we got help from them, but also because, I mean, in terms of building the campaign, but we got help with them in terms of marketing. They sent our product out into their newsletter and of the $400,000 in pre-order sales that we made through the campaign, I would guess a good $150,000 is directly attributed to their help, to oh, their wow. marketing. Wow. So, so it was, it was significant. So one of the better choices, you know, you when you're building a business, it's a series of choices that you make and some are going to be good and some are, are not going to be good. Uh, and you have to get lucky. You have to make enough good choices and decisions and the timing has to be right so that you lead down a path to uh, to whatever that success metric is that you're chasing. In our case, it was just to get this thing funded so that we can buy some inventory and potentially start this company. Yeah, yeah. That so, was one of the choices we made along the way that was a good one. Yeah, so if you reflect back on on the crowdfunding, I mean, a lot of entrepreneurs are interested in crowdfunding. It's gotten a lot of press and stuff. What's like one or two lessons learned? Uh, in addition to picking the right partner, right, Indiegogo in your case, what are there other lessons or two that you learned in the crowdfunding uh, experience that you'd like to share with uh, entrepreneurs? Absolutely. I think that you can't just... The, well, a couple things we did. One is I, I read everything there is to read online that I could find about how to do a successful crowdfunding campaign. So there were some posts that really stood out, the like blog posts. Like one was written by Tim Ferriss on his four-hour blog, which might be dated now because I read it a few years ago and it was already a few years old. But you have to go around and dig and look for the the support material and everything you can do to do a good job. You can't just put something on there and think that there's a, a million hungry buyers that are going to want to buy your thing. You have to really put the work in. And it took us a year and a half to do it right. It took us a year and a half to build. That included sourcing the product and building the prototypes, but also doing all the design assets and everything. But the most important thing that you need to do is you need to manufacture your own momentum. So if we were to go and create this campaign just as we did and hit start and hope for the best, hope that it got funded, I guarantee that we would not have been funded. But what we did was I got tons of friends and family to know that this was about to happen. And I did so much legwork to get them to help back by product, buy a t-shirt, do what you can. I worked on that for a month and a half, getting everyone I knew to commit to helping because those first few hours where you can get a little bit of momentum going on your own, that is so key. That's so key to becoming a trending campaign to get people who don't know you and don't care about you to think, hey, this might be a hot product. So don't just go out there and just think that it's going to be successful. It's not. Manufacture your own momentum because those early hours, those first few hours matter so much and it's only on you to make it work. Yeah, great, great advice. I love your phrase, manufacture your own momentum. Uh, that's really mm -hmm. wonderful. I, I wrote that down. That's a keeper. Uh, good. That's really good. Good advice. Uh, so, uh, in looking at your website, it looks like you and a couple of your friends, longtime friends actually started this business. Yep. And, uh, there are lots of horror stories where, uh, people start businesses with friends and it doesn't 
go that well. Uh, so talk to talk to us about yours. Well, business could be a horror story with or without friends. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> right. So I just that's, it, it, don't blame your friends if it becomes a horror story. You know, I think what's good about working with your friends and in my case, these are my lifelong best friends is the level of candor we could have between one another is uh, is unmatched. You, you can't do that with people that you sort of don't know that well. You know, I can go and call him a, an asshole like for something he did and, and he knows that it's all out of love. Uh, we want the best for one another. We're not competitive with each other for any kind of individual glory or selfish needs or desires. We want each other to win. We're fair with one another. We're candid with one another. And because it's going well, we're having the most fun ever together. Now, if it didn't work, we could be candid with each other about, you know, I wish that I would have done more of this. I wish you would have done more of this. But that's an advantage of being yeah. in business with your friends. I think being in business with your friends is an amazing thing because uh, at the end of the day, every day I get to show up to work with the people who I like hanging out with anyway. And we can go out for a beer, you know, pre-pandemic, pre-lockdown when we were able to go out for a beer. And we could talk about the business all night and have – and it's fun. It's not like we're like dragging work into our social lives. Like we ha we're working on a project together that's a fun and exciting thing that's that's building a future for each for ourselves and we're doing it together. I am one of the biggest advocates of working with your friends is a great idea because you know, you have to you have to put long hours in to make this thing work. And why not do it with the people you love and have fun doing it? Yeah, excellent. Excellent perspective. So uh, did the three of you have different backgrounds or how, how did you sort of divide up the work and who does what? How did you how did you work through that? Well, I I've, was in my previous business. I worked with one of my partners. He was basically our our lead producer in video production. He did and a jack of all trades. He did so much. And, and without him, we would not have been able to run the business the way we did. I knew I wanted to work with him because he's a very good yin to my yang. You know, I'm I'm very much uh, vision and the guy who's willing to jump in first and say, okay, now jump in. It's safe down here kind of thing. Uh, I'm sort of that starter, but he's a real implementer. He's a real hard worker. And I just, I've worked with him. I have worked with him since we were 12 years old. We used to have news, a newspaper route. He'd have his, I have his, we'd deliver our newspapers and we'd meet at McDonald's for breakfast after every time we'd finish our paper route. Then we worked at a grocery store together and a movie theater together. I, I worked every job with this guy since I was 12 years old and we're 35 now. So not many people work with someone that long and we're only 35. It's like we've worked with each other for a couple decades almost. So um, I knew I was going to work with him. And then our other best friend, he was a, a creative director at an ad agency. And while we had this idea, we knew we wanted to do Merino wool clothing. We knew we wanted to do a crowdfunding campaign. We knew that we wanted to build this into an e-commerce business. We just couldn't get the thing together. We couldn't get the identity of this thing together, the vision for the brand. And we knew there was a missing piece. So we reached out to Dima, who's our other friend, and, and he because he's a creative director at that agency. He said, Could you want to help us do this project? And he pulled – it was just the right move to it. Another one of those good decisions where bringing him on – just tied the whole thing together because we were spinning our wheels trying to figure out like what is the this thing like how do we articulate what this thing is um so he was the missing piece 
So once he came into the fold, it was just like everything felt like it was just firing all cylinders and the and the ball started rolling. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I was always working with Andrew and Dima was that missing piece. That's sort of how it came together. Yeah, yeah. So it's it sounds like none of you had sort of experience in designing uh, fashion and manufacturing mm-hmm. it and distribution and sort of all the intricacies of that. So how did you go, how did you go about uh, filling that gap in your business? Well, we just you know there's a right way and there's the other way to do everything. You know, and in our in the as far as clothing goes, we weren't doing anything the right way because we had no idea how to do things the right way. We were do, and I wouldn't say the wrong way because it worked. We did it the other way. So when you're making clothing, the 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 industry standard way of doing things is by building what's called a tech pack. And a tech pack, in effect, is a, the instruction manual that you give to the manufacturers. So they know how to make your T-shirt or sweatshirt or whatever. And it has all the sizing. It has the paper pattern. It shows how to cut the thing. It's exactly how they look at what your product should be and know how to make the finished product. We had no idea this thing existed. So what we did is we went to all the stores like Gap and Old Navy and H&M. And we bought T-shirts. And we tried them on. And we'd say, we like the way this neck fits on this gap t-shirt but we don't like the sleeves they're too boxy we like the sleeves on the h&m t-shirt and we bought all these shirts and we literally stapled on post-it notes with notes about what we liked and didn't like and we mailed them off to our our, our manufacturers that we found and we had them frankenstein together a shirt which would be our shirt and we didn't like the way that fit, so we'd send notes back saying the shirt, the the neck is too tight, the the sleeves are too short, you know, anything that we could do to sort of modify it. And we did that. It took many, many, many months of iterations. I think we had almost a dozen iterations until we liked the fit of our own shirt, and we ended up having a shirt. That's how we got to it. So. We had no experience, but what we had was the will to get it done. So there's always uh, the back door to get in, you know, to to figure out how to make it work. And we did. So now we have tech packs because we've since have hired product designers to work with us and say, here's our shirt. And we want to be able to make different manufacturers and not be tied to just the one manufacturer we started with. So we do things right now, but you don't have to know what you're doing. It's a myth. And all these people that go to school, there's a skill that you can gain from going to school and learning how to do things the right way. The, it's not bad to go and learn to do things the right way, but you don't need it. Yeah, there's it's amazing, I think we're proof of that. Yeah, it's amazing how many resources are available out there, right? With a little bit of ingenuity, uh, just like you can market your product and sell your product to everyone around the world. There's also all these resources available to you all in all different parts of the world to help you sort of build and put your business together. Yeah, you know, you and, and there's, you, you know... The end goal was very clear to us. We wanted to have a 100% merino wool t-shirt that had a certain feel to it, a certain weight, and a certain fit. We knew when we put it on what that quality would be, so we just thought that nothing until we get to the, that t-shirt. When I was wearing the t-shirt, which would be the Unbound Marine, our core product, I knew. Because I knew what I was looking for, and I was frustrated with what was already out there in the market. Yeah. We didn't have all of the the tools to to know how to do it properly, but we knew that at the end of the day, we needed to put that T-shirt on and know, yes, we got it. Yeah, you had a clear so, idea of what you wanted. So just jump over the wall, go around the back door, do whatever you have to do to figure it out. In our case, it was having a Sharpie and Post-it notes 
and just trying to communicate as clearly as we could what we're trying to accomplish, and we got there. Yeah. And now, if I understand correctly, you're direct to consumer, right? You don't you don't go through any retail outlets. A hundred percent direct to consumer. Yeah. So Correct. what what sort of the the key things that that you need to know about being able to go direct to consumer? I mean, what are the things that you have to do? A lot less than if you were to go into a retail environment. I mean, we don't have any wholesale relationships that we need to manage. We don't have to have um, price lists or brochures that we need to go and give to people in order to sell them. We don't need to go to trade shows. There's a whole lot less to do, and that's part of the the design of our business. We don't want. I told you at the beginning of the of this podcast, like I used to, you know, go to a party and have to talk about what I did for a living to try to meet new clients. And I hated that. So the part of the design of this business is we don't want any clients. We want customers because customers spend less. If they're unhappy, it's easy to give them a refund and say, I'm sorry, the product's not for you. Um, clients are too, they're worth too much and they're too much of a headache. So the thing that's beautiful about a direct consumer brand is yeah, it's not to say it's easy, but it's simpler. The business model is simpler. You just need to, find a way to get people onto your website and to communicate what your value proposition is enough, clearly enough that they'll maybe be interested in buying, you know? So an uh, like a, a benchmark conversion rate on a direct consumer website is about 2%. 2% of the people coming onto that website are going to make a purchase, you know? So if you can get above 2%, you can, you just got to start finding ways of getting more and more traffic on your site and maintaining that conversion rate. And for us, you know, we started with the momentum of our crowdfunding campaign. The next thing we focused on was Facebook ads. Like we, we, we knew we just need to keep the momentum going, keep people coming onto our website. You know, we wanted to make sure that our people were searching for Marina wool stuff online, that they'd find this. So we invested in SEO and that took two years until we really had, anything that was appearing on the front page. Um, we started to really focus on emails to get customers to come back and to to drive more word of mouth. You have to just start thinking, what's the next thing I'm going to focus on that's going to get more people onto the website? And when people are on the website, how am I going to make sure the conversion rate is continuing to be strong? You know, our conversion rate's above three now, which is really high for an e-commerce brand. Yeah. But as we drive more traffic, how do we maintain our conversion rate? So it's always just this balance. Get more people on the website and make sure that they're you're communicating clearly enough that they're interested in taking a risk and buying your product. Yeah. Yeah. So when you think about running your business, uh, you know, you have manufacturing, you have design, you have your, your direct to consumer programs and campaigns, you have your website. How do you decide what you do internally? and you hire your own employees to do and what you sort of contract out for others to do? Uh, you know, I think it's one thing we've been very good at is not trying to bite off more than we can chew. So when we first got onto our, our Shopify store, our e-commerce store after crowdfunding, the one thing we focused on marketing wise was Facebook ads and we weren't relentlessly focusing on a whole lot else. But we did decide that we wanted to do it ourselves. And the reason why we thought we could do it ourselves is we have a background in video from our previous business. So we can do video ads as well as photography because they go hand in hand. Uh, our business partner, Demo, is a creative director, is really good at 
the, his brand positioning and the copywriting. So we felt like we had the chops to do our own ads. Instead of outsourcing that and leaving it all in the power of someone else, let's sort of figure it out. So we hired a consultant to give us the insight on how Facebook ads work. And then we just started tinkering and we started with a hundred bucks a day, which seemed like an enormous amount of money. If this wasn't going right, we didn't want to lose a hundred dollars a day, but it was working really well. And it was not long before we were spending a thousand and then $1,500 a day because the return on ad spend was so high that it, we were able to do it. But we weren't focusing on a whole lot more. We were focusing on something we thought this played to what our skills were. But at that time, we also knew that we wanted to get rank on on search engines we had no desire and no reason to believe that we were going to be good at the seo so we outsourced that so what we really did is we tried to be real with ourselves and and, and address this is what we think we could do ourselves based on who we are and being real with what our skill sets are and then outsource the one thing that we don't think that we're going to be very good at that and we still work with the same seo guy He's done a fantastic job, and we'll just let's leave it in his court because we still are not going to be good at that. It works. It's working. We'll continue to invest in him. So as we got the Facebook ads thing underway, we started to think, well, what's the next thing? And we wanted to retain more customers, so email. So we started – we felt like that was in our wheelhouse. So what we do is we hire consultants here and there to give us to, – to, to jumpstart our thinking – on what we can do and how we can do it better. But we try to take on things ourselves that we think fit into our skill set. Anything yeah. else, if it just if it doesn't feel natural to something that we can do, or if we just don't want to do it and we think it's important, then we'll outsource it. Yeah. Like another example of that is PR. Like we would start to reach out, hey, we're on Bound Marino and we try to get people to, you know, even like find a, a podcast for us to talk about our brand on or to be in a holiday roundup of products because the, the holiday season's coming like it's a great gift we just didn't like reaching out to people to do that so we hire out for that because it's just not our it's again you know like again back to your question about the parties i don't like going to people and talking about what we do uh so that they'll write about us in their blog I'd rather someone else do that. Yeah. It's just not my personality. Yeah. But if they want to talk to me like the way we're talking right now, I love talking about what we do. I just don't like hunting for it because I don't find it to be a very natural and nice thing to do. Yeah. That's just the way I think. Yeah. Very nice. Very nice. So uh, how many employees do you have now? How big are you guys? Um, there's 10 of us uh, in our operation and a bunch of contractors. So, you know, design people, um, photographers that we work with, uh, consultants that we work with. But our team is 10. Yeah, very nice. But I will say your website's beautiful. I was checking it out uh, earlier today. And uh, really well done. Uh, it does have a compelling story there. Uh, so, you know, it has all those nice things that sort of wants to make you, hey, I want to be part of this, right? It, it, you guys are really good at that. Hey, this is, this is cool. I want to be part yeah. of this. Well, that's good um, to hear. Yeah, yeah. So, and that's coming from a you know sixty-seven-year-old guy. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, you know what? I, I, we a huge portion of our customers are in their late fifties and sixties, um, especially because it's like they 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 don't want to they they get the value proposition, especially when it came to travel. Traveling lighter sounds nice to them. You know, they don't want to schlep around heavy bags, 
and they don't care for having a million outfits to take pictures for Instagram because they're not there right. for that reason. They're there for the sites and they're there to spend time with their families. So, and also we did very well on Facebook ads and Facebook is, has turned into a platform of that skewing a lot older. So we have built a, a, a huge market with older net. Well, it's a men's product, older men. So yeah. 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 Very cool. So, uh, if someone came to you, uh, an entrepreneur, getting ready to start a business, and, and it's going to be a consumer product, right? They want to go direct, kind of like you guys. What would be your one or two words of wisdom for them? If they wanted to start? Yeah, a direct-to-consumer business, yeah. You know, they have an idea for something. You know, I think one, one of the things that worked really well for, for us, and the reason why I was staying up at night thinking I needed to do this is because I've seen a pattern, and I saw this with my friends that started e-commerce brands that became very successful. It was a moment of clarity where they realized there's a hole in the market. Like They were looking for something, and no brand was doing it right. If you ever come to a place where you see the... It, I can do this in a way that's not being done or I can do this in a way that's better than what's currently being done. You might have hit something in the in terms of timing that it, you you might not want to pass that opportunity. If things become very popular, and I tried creating a sock brand before, like a funky sock brand. And the reason we tried creating the sock brand is because all of a sudden, where we live in Toronto, everyone started wearing funky socks. And we thought, well, I have a cool idea for funky socks. And I, I still like the idea that we had, but it was popular, and if something becomes is becoming popular, it's already too late. So the difference between why that brand didn't work and why I think Unbound's working is because people didn't know Merino wool. I discovered it and felt like people aren't doing it the way I want it to be done. So there's something to be said about timing. And if you ever feel like you could be the person to bring something to market that isn't in the market the way you feel it should be that might be something you want to pay attention to and i think that's a piece of advice that's not talked about too much but the importance of timing is immense yeah great advice dan great advice dan you've been a, a wonderful guest uh the story of uh, unbound merino is just uh, fabulous and uh i wish you guys the best of luck and uh What's the what's the website? Search for unbound Un, unbound merino. Unboundmerino.com. So unbound and merino m e r i n o.com and you can find us on Instagram and Twitter and all that stuff. Well, that's great. Hey, thanks again for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate being here. Well, Bela, this was I thought one of the best interviews that we've had uh if not forever in a long time. Uh, just a really interesting human being with a great story. Uh, what were the big highlights or takeaways from your perspective? So one of the ones that really jumped out at me is when Dan said, you have to manufacture your own momentum, right? So his point was just because you build it doesn't necessarily mean they will come. Uh, just because you have a Facebook page for your business, just because you have a web page for your business doesn't mean that you're going to get people visiting there. You have to figure out a way to manufacture your own uh, momentum. Uh, and I think that's true And when he talked about the kick, not the Kickstarter campaign, but the Indiegogo. crowdfunding. Mm -hmm. Yep, the Indiegogo, which that also was an interesting point, which we can talk about. Uh, but the Indiegogo campaign, he worked really, really hard to get that going and to get people to participate. 
And then once they got that, that you could see they put a lot of time and energy into sort of the building the brand and promoting the brand. And if you think about the backgrounds of the people who, who were in that business, him and his two best friends, most of, I think they all had sort of a marketing, uh, video production, uh, you know, ad campaign type of background and experience. Uh, and they really leveraged that. So they really understood how to use social. And the other interesting thing related to this, which was, uh, I think he said that they decided they were going to do Facebook and they were going to get really, really good at Facebook. So instead of trying to do all of the social platforms, they figured out where does their demographic hang out the most. They did a couple test campaigns and then they really concentrated on Facebook because they, they figured out how to do that, how to do it really well, and then it was generating good returns for them. So and those it are the things their that, target market, right? Yes, and it matched their demographic target market, exactly. So those were the things that jumped out at me, Mike. How about you? I, I mean, I could talk for hours, and we just got done saying we're going to be shorter and more concise on this, so I'll work on that, Bela. Um, well, the Indiegogo story, you kind of brought that up. That was great. And I love the fact that they didn't automatically go with the number one, which was Kickstarter, uh, because the number two provider of crowdsourcing in the U.S. took a, was much more active in trying to win their business and gave them a lot more support and help. And I think there's a great takeaway there um, that sometimes, you know, yeah, it's worth it to do the number one provider of anything. But sometimes the number two or number three, which are just as competent or just as good, will go the extra mile to help you. And when you're an entrepreneur just starting out, especially in areas that you don't have all the expertise, um, that can be really helpful. Um, also, his kind of approach toward using outsourcing and using contractors. What are you good at? Do that yourself. What either that you're not good at um, or that you don't want to do, outsource. And this idea of using a consultant just to give you, even if it's something you like to do, Get a consultant to help show you the ropes, to teach you how to do it, and then off you go. That was some really good, I think, business advice to anybody, entrepreneur or not, um, on how to kind of manage expertise and, and manage your time to focus on, on what, what you're best at and what, what's most effective for the organization. Yeah, I, I want to go back to the crowdfunding thing just for a second, because I think the real, the real takeaway there is the importance of customer service, Right. So if the number one company would have had equal customer service <laughs> to the number two, they probably would have gone with number one, right? Mm -hmm. So the point being is oftentimes the relationships you build with your potential customers and your existing customers is more important than whether you're number one or number two or number three. And that's how you're going to hold your customers and that's how you're going to build good customer relations and a good brand in the, in the business. And I think that's the real important uh, takeaway there, uh, that customer service really, really is a place where you can differentiate yourself in the marketplace. Yeah, and it's a reinforcing loop, right? They helped him. They went the extra mile. They helped him get what he estimated, you know, 25% of their funding was through their marketing efforts, right? And yep. he's returning the favor, right? He's saying, hey, you know, think about your choice here, right? Um, exactly. And, and, and so they're both helping each other in a mutually rewarding way, which I think is a fantastic kind of story of small businesses working together. Although Indiegogo is not so small anymore, but um, you know, small businesses helping each other. It's an ecosystem. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mike. So wrap it up, keep it short, wrap, wrap it up, wrap it up, wrap it up. Thanks for joining us this week. Listeners. Uh, glad to be back. Hope uh, you missed us maybe a little bit. I don't know. 
But we hope you found uh, the last 45 minutes or so interesting and thought-provoking. If you have questions about what we've discussed, uh, please get in touch with us. Our email is bailout.and.mike at gmail.com. Hey, and if you haven't subscribed to the podcast uh, in your favorite app, uh, please do. It helps us. Uh, And uh, if you have comments on our new format, i.e. shorter, uh, let us know. And, uh, you know, we're, we're open to changing it again. Mike and I like to experiment and do new things. And we always enjoy uh, hearing from our listeners. So uh, until next week, or until I should say the next episode, Mike, uh, signing off from upstate New York, have a great week. Thanks, Bela. You too. I hope everybody stays healthy and happy. Auf Wiedersehen. <laughs>